Welcome to the Rolling Reel with Renard podcast, where we dive deep into the remarkable journeys of our incredible guests. Join us as we uncover their personal transformations, business triumphs, educational insights, health and wellness discoveries, and the mindset shifts that have paved their way to success. Get ready to be inspired and motivated to reinvent your own life and become the best version of yourself. Get ready. Let's roll. Hey, everyone. This is Renard Brown, and you are rolling real with Renard. Ladies and gentlemen, health enthusiasts and curious minds, get ready to embark on a journey of mind-bending health revelations and cutting-edge wellness wizardry. I'm your host, Renard Brown, and today we have a truly electrifying guest joining us today, Dr. McCashup. How are you, my good man? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Good. Hey, we also have another special guest here. Uh, why, don't, hey, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm Rodman McCashup. I'm the doc's son. Um, I help run the practice. <laughs> the doc. All right, so what is the best way for us to refer to you as the doc, Dr. McCashup? Well, in the office, they call me Dr. McCasha, but as a friend, you can call me Anthony. Anthony, very, very nice. I like Anthony. Oh, very, very nice. Okay. And what should we call you, my good man? Uh, Rodman. Rodman. Uh, guys, I want you to imagine a physician who doesn't just walk the path of conventional medicine, but dances on the edge of possibility, seamlessly bending uh, the wisdom of ancient healing practices with the marvels of modern science. Our guest today is the embodiment of health greatest hits, the maestro of alternative health, the fearless explorer of biohacking wild frontiers, Dr. McCashup. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of questions uh, that we obviously have uh, as a result to um, as it relates to three different topics that I wanted to uh, talk to you about uh, one right. of, yeah one of the topics that we you know we definitely need to talk about uh, anti-aging that's right. a big one it's a big one uh, health and well overall health and wellness right and then of course uh, I'd like to uh, definitely pick your brain about what's going on right now in terms of COVID and how people can you know just basically build up their immune system, stay healthy and safe, and just some of the things that you would recommend or suggest uh, people to do. Sure. All right. So with all that being said, would you mind kind of giving us like a little rundown background about uh, who you are, where you're from, and, you know, just... All right. I'm uh, just a simple country doctor from Mooresville now, but basically I um, grew up in Southern California. I went to UC Santa Barbara. Then I went to New Jersey School of Osteopathic Medicine. I did my residency at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, um, spent a few years in Illinois practicing, and then came to Mooresville in 1994. So I've been an internist here at Mooresville for about almost 25, 30 years. And in addition to that, the last 10 years, I've trained in integrative medicine. Very, very nice. Now, do you currently run a practice? I do. All right. And what is your practices? Because so, you have two. I will tell you. So we do a, I don't like to say the word traditional, but I have an internal medicine practice on the upper floor of my office. Right. And that we utilize to do um, the things that we can do um, through your insurance. So if there's blood work that needs to be done, if there's testing that needs to be done, um, we can offer that through your insurance. And then we have an alternative uh, practice, which is downstairs. And that are, those are just options to what your care can be. All right. So of course, I would like everyone to take those options. Um, but not everyone is into alternative medicine and they just need to be more educated with it. Why do you think people are, are, a little skittish about alternative medicine. I think it's because we kind of been cultured into traditional medicine that you go to your doctor, he gives you a prescription, and that if it's covered by insurance, you're okay to do that. That's what we. That's what traditional medicine is, and it's really reactionary medicine. So we're just reacting to what you tell us when you come in the office. The other thing, medicine has become more of a business. There's big systems now, so doctors have maybe 15, 20 minutes per patient. And I don't think that's enough time to get to know you as a human being. So what kind of problems can that pose if you're just basically an in and out, uh, high volume practice? I think, you'd, first of all, there's many things that impinge upon people's health. 
okay? There's their spiritual life. There's their work life, their environment life. There's their home life. A lot of those things can't be incorporated into a 15, 20-minute visit. You're really just looking for what's wrong, what are you here for, let me see what I can do for you. There might be some testing to do, and we'll have you come back in a couple of weeks and go over everything. So in my practice, I have people sit down and we go through a lot of different things, okay? I go on what, what's happening at home with you, um, where do you work, um, what are your interests? And so what I'm looking for is if they're ill, I want to treat you with the least toxic options. At the same time, if you're fairly healthy, I'll try to optimize your health. And I do by, do that by doing kind of a dashboard of your health on the first visit. So I look at all your vitamins, I look at all your hormones, I look at your electrolytes, your sugar, your A1C, your lipids, all that stuff is on a, a preliminary blood test, not something that's done every single time, it's just done once or twice a year. And then I do a bunch of tests, I check your heart, I check your brain, I check your lungs, I check your bone density, I check your thyroid, um, all that's done on the initial visit. Then I have you come back, and we go over everything. And again, remember, I'm here to optimize your health and to minimize medications if we can. Okay. It sounds like you're counterculture. I am. You're very, very counterculture because you typically don't hear uh, medical professionals say the things that you've just said. Uh, there was three things that really stuck out. One, your lifestyle focus. Two, your thorough evaluation where you're actually spending more time with people. And then three, um, the focus of not prescribing toxic prescriptions to people and looking at alternatives. How did you come to, I mean, were you always like this? No. <laughs> no, I was a tradition. Ten years ago, I was the same doctor. I would come, I saw thirty patients a day, in and out, prescriptions everywhere. And I just told my wife at one point, I said, "I'm just getting bored. I just think I'm just giving prescriptions all day, and there's got to be more to medicine." So I was just trying to increase my toolbox. So I took a few alternative medicine courses. I'm still taking courses. Really? Yeah. So. Once again, how long have you been doing the alternative options? About so, eight to ten years. Okay. Yeah. All right. And what? And so, aside from the uh, getting bored, was there ever an incident where you knew that if they would have gone the alternative route, they would have, you know, maybe improved their prognosis? Yes. Here's a perfect example. Okay. Someone comes in with a sore throat. Okay. I give them antibiotics. They go home. And they call me and they say, you know what, those antibiotics are really making me nauseous. I give them something for nausea. They call me back two days later and say, you know, that nausea medicine works, but it keeps me up at night. So I give them a sleeping pill. So from your initial visit, you've gotten three medicines that are going into your system that shouldn't be in your system. Now, maybe the antibiotics could have been changed to something else, but still, again, there might have been some other options to use even for the antibiotics. Okay, so. Interesting. So again, that's a perfect example of over-prescribing, but you're just, right, it's a call, respond. A call, respond. Right. Because you've given one thing, they have a side effect. They give another thing, you got a side effect. They give another thing, you get a side effect. So you just toxify the patient with three medicines. And that's what I'm saying about just writing prescriptions all day. I'm just reacting with a prescription. Is there ever a time in which you can be proactive in your approach? So someone comes in... Is it ever an opportunity for you to say, hey, well, listen, stop. There's something else going on with you right now. I can prescribe you this right here, and it may work, it may not work, I don't know. Um, would you be open to other suggestions that are alternative than what we're about to do? Uh, are those conversations ever had? Yeah, those are the conversations I have daily uh, with patients. I always give people options. I basically say, look, I tell you I treat with the least toxic options. So this is what I would probably do with your knee. If I inject it with cortisone, which is a traditional way, too many cortisone shots actually destroy your joint. So what I can do is I can do something a little bit different. I can do something called ozone therapy, or I can do platelet-rich plasma, or I can do NAD into your joint. So there's other options that I can do with your joint that are not as toxic as giving you a cortisone shot, or even saying you to a surgeon that decides they want to do a knee replacement. Very interesting. So I certainly appreciate that background. Um, Rodman, you've been on the other side of... Almost from the start, I think of the first five years, I've been 
I've been working under uh, my dad for about nine years now. I think the first five years I was working on the traditional side. Right. And then the downstairs practice opened the last year I was working upstairs. And then after that, I kind of transitioned from working upstairs um, and the traditional practice working downstairs an alternative full time. So um, I kind of got to see what it was like to be on the traditional side, but then also got to experience this entire, you know, entirely new thing. Right. Um, I'm sorry, what were you going to say? No, no, no. So where I'm going with this is, um, do you notice a big difference in the people that come in for traditional medicine versus people who come in for alternative medicine. So now we have your little AB mm -hmm. thing going on, mm -hmm. you know, so you got person A, maybe they have a sore throat, backache, pain, they get prescribed. Person B, same, same uh, diagnosis, but Maybe they do, um, you know, one of the alternative uh, medicines. Sovereign silver, you can do silver. You can do um, oil of oregano. There's a bunch of things you can use for that sore throat that are non-toxic. Yeah, there are a lot of options for that. And I think a big thing is actually watching them walk through the door yes. between a follow-up visit right. upstairs after going through the medic medication side um, or walking in for their last treatment on the alternative side. There's a very big difference between the two. Um, neuropathy, I think, is one of the best examples because we do a laser therapy to treat neuropathy, peripheral neuropathy, um, even diabetic neuropathy as well. And talking to them, I always try to make a point for those patients because I don't do the laser therapy. I always try to make a point to sit down and talk to them and ask them how their treatment is going throughout. And getting closer to the end of their treatments, for those, uh, for those particular people, I tend to see those people be very, very upbeat, very happy, um, very satisfied with their treatments, and starting to see improvement. Okay. Versus traditional side, they really don't ever say there's like an actual way to completely mitigate your neuropathy. There are just ways to dull it. But over time, it still gets worse. Ooh. Okay, so now we're getting into a topic of maintenance, you know, using prescriptions as a maintenance tool or a little device to just, it's not going to get rid of it. It'll just minimize the effects. And then the alternative, hey, you're cured. You're fine. You don't, I don't need to see you anymore. The, the, the interesting thing is like the, what he is seeing, you see the outcomes, right? So you're looking at your traditional and they'll say, yeah, that helps a little, but makes me tired. The medicine just makes me sleepy. And then you see this side where they're going, wow, I don't have to use my cane anymore. You know, so oh you're seeing, gosh. you see the outcomes. And so you know that this is working versus the other side. You're saying, okay, I gave you the medicine that I would typically give you. But it, as you can see, it just kind of makes you sleepy. And Interesting. Yeah. So going forward. Um, now this is a little jump jumping ahead. Okay. What is your uh, what is your vision for the alternative practice that you've started right now? Well, I'd like to be at least a model for what our healthcare system should be like. So I'm really interested in changing the whole landscape of healthcare. Okay, my vision is to change the entire landscape of healthcare. That's my vision. So hopefully we can be a model for that system that can occur in the future. I think there's a lot of roadblocks, but but to be honest with you, over the last four or five years, people are asking me now, is there anything I can take besides medicine? Oh, really? Yeah, the trend is they're asking me now. Is there any? And then they come in, like typically my Medicare patients have 10 to 15 medicines. Now I'm seeing Medicare patients that have never taken medicine. No kidding. They're saying, look, I don't want any medicine, so just I want you to know that up front. I really don't want to take any medicine at all. Oh, they're just coming right before you can say anything. Exactly. So people are looking for that now. They're looking for that. That's interesting. That's interesting. That's the, the trend is like, okay, I don't know. I don't want to be on any medicine. I just want to see what you're, what you can do, especially if there's anything alternative I can do. If there's anything at home I can do, and there's lots of things you can do at home. I mean, remember, not all my patients have money to do a lot of the procedures we do downstairs. So some of my indigent patients, I'll tell them what they can do. Okay, for example, vitamin D, very important vitamin, heals lots of different things. Vitamin C, quercetin, zinc. And they can buy those things at Walmart. 
Okay, just take those four things when the virus is out or the COVID's out. You, feel, you know, you feel like take those four things every day. You can go buy that at Walmart, Walmart, so or Target, whatever you want to go. So trying to get people to do basic things right. that are alternative. It's not like you know you're gonna hey hold on to this antibiotic and when you get sick just take it. It's not like that. Um, first of all, the trend is now that people are looking for it, but there's also people that I'm trying to educate to say, hey, this is probably better than taking medicine if you can afford this to go to Walmart and get this. See what I'm saying? I do. I do. So since we're talking about um, you know health and wellness, can you explain the concept of holistic health and how it differs from traditional medicine and what role does it play in promoting overall well-being? So holistic health is treating the entire person as a person, okay? And Holistic medicine is also proactive. Traditional medicine is we treat a system. You come in, you have a sore throat, you have a pharyngitis. That's your throat. Mm-hmm. You have a sore shoulder, you have an orthopedic problem. You have a, you have a bursitis of your shoulder. You have a belly pain and we, we diagnose pancreatitis. You're pancreatitis. You're a system. You're not a whole person. Okay, so in the traditional sense, you're, we come in and we say, oh, you got pancreatitis. Oh, you have diabetes. So you're a diabetic. Or you're a holistic doctor, you're saying, okay, what things can impact this problem? Okay, are you sleeping okay? All right, is anything happening at home? What's the stress level like? Okay, um, what's your energy level like? Are you tired a lot? Okay, are you taking anything over the counter? Did anything happen in your life recently? Okay, um, are you being exposed to anything? Are you around pesticides? Are you around, you know, does your house have mold in it? So there's a big, huge avenue of questioning when you're a holistic doctor than going just by the systems. Because in holistic medicine, everything is connected. Okay? Agreed. So if you have a headache, it could be due to stress or it could be due to the lighting in your house. So there's a lot of different things that can be giving you a headache. It doesn't mean I just give you a prescription for, you know, pain medicine or migraine medicine, but typically that's what we would do. Why? Because right. I only have, because if you're a traditional, I only have 15 minutes with you. Right? So it's, I'm not going to ask all those other, I'm just going to say, oh, well, you know, are you sensitive light? Um, how bad is the headache? Okay, I'm going to give you a prescription for um, sumatriptan. You have a migraine. I will say also the most important thing I think throughout the entire time working at the office, the most important thing that my dad ever said to me is he said, you don't treat the numbers, treat the patient. That's been the most don't important. treat thing. the numbers. Right, because the, the numbers can look bad. It doesn't mean the patient's bad. It happens in thyroid, okay? So if someone comes in and their thyroid profile is normal, but they're telling you they're constipated, they're losing hair, they're tired all the time, they can't tolerate weather changes. They've got a thyroid problem. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> you know? So if it's that, you know, if it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. So don't treat just the numbers, treat the patient. Because the patient's telling you right in front of you. Okay? It's just like if I do a stress test on a patient, right? right? And it's normal. I do an ultrasound of their heart, I do a stress test, and they come back and they say, you know, I'm still having that tightness in my chest, and it's going down my left arm. I know my stress test is okay. They've got a heart problem. doesn't matter if my stress test is okay, right? They need to, so I'm going to say to them, I'm going to go a little bit further. I'm going to have the heart doctor look at you so they can do a more specific test. Why? Because I'm listening to the patient. Not I could just say, oh, your, your stress test is normal. Your ultrasound was normal. Don't worry. Your, your heart's fine. Mm-mm. We can't find anything. Mm-mm. They're telling you they've got a problem. If you're listening closely, this is their heart doesn't matter what the stress test shows. doesn't matter what the ultrasound shows. Get them more help. Right. You see what I'm saying? I do. That's holistic. You're using your, all your skills holistically to say, okay, this is what we need to do. Not just pinpointing one little symptom and saying, okay, let's just um, hone in on that. Uh, belly pain's a big one. You know, belly pain can be a lot of different things. Sometimes it's stress. You know, and, but we're, we're looking for all these other things. Maybe you have cancer. Maybe you've got, you know, an ulcer. Maybe, got, but it could just be stress. But right. we don't ask those questions, right? We'll just kind of go to all the tests first. Got it. And then we'll say stress. Got it. Just as a piggyback on that, since we're talking about uh, holistic healing and the use of um, holistic medicine. So we're in a world filled with fad diets and fitness trends. 
what are some of the key principles that individuals should prioritize for a sustainable and balanced health and wellness uh, profile? This is going to blow your mind. Okay, I'm so, ready. For longevity purposes and for health, you're not going to believe this. What you eat is important, but when you eat is more. When you eat. That is new. My ears are perfect. I told you I'd blow your mind. What you eat is important, okay. but when you eat is more important. So what does that mean? So they've done studies on people, or mice and people, that have done eight, three meals a day. Right. And they've done studies on people that have one or two meals a day. Right. The, the, the animals that, because they were able to sacrifice them, that ate one meal a day lived 30% longer than the animals that and had 50% less diseases. Man. But wait, but wait. Right. Let me ask, let me tell you another thing. Okay. So remember I told you it's not what you eat, it's when you eat? Right. That meal, the one meal, was just as much as all those three put together. Interesting. I was going down, I was thinking a different thing when you talked about the 30% increase in longevity. I was going down the path of that digestive system, like overwhelming your digestive system and not giving it an opportunity to really break down those foods. So that's really key because your microbiome in your gut is critical. Okay. okay. So let's talk about that. All right. So the microbiome in your gut is all the bacteria that settle in your gut and they break down food. And there's a balance of that. So it should have a perfect balance. So if you only eat hot dogs every day, your microbiome are only the bacteria that break down hot dogs. Okay. Now, excuse me, does this have anything to do with acidity and having your body more alkaline? Having your body more alkaline is always better, but that's not it's quite what this means. Okay, got Okay, it. what it means is that the bowel wall is one cell thick. It's like this. One cell, though, but it's very tight. And if you disturb the microbiome, it starts to kind of come out. Or if you take ibuprofen or Aleve, that's, that's like throwing a grenade in your bowel, and boom, it opens up, okay? And so what happens is the contents of the gut leak into you. Is that what they call leaky gut? Yes. Ah, interesting. So many things can cause that, but a lot of times it's just the bacteria have been way off balance, okay? Again, usually from diet. So vegetables tend to increase the bowel wall because they have butyrate. Butyrate, you know, really kind of keeps the, the junctions together. Meat creates sulfide, and sulfur tends to break down the bowel wall. So doesn't mean you can't eat a lot of meat, but if you eat only meat, you're going to break down your bowel wall more than if you eat vegetables because vegetables have butyrate. It increases the bowel wall. Okay, so that'll solidify it a bit. So it should be a balance, again, of what you eat. But again, when, you're, when I say you should really have a lot of different vegetables is because your microbiome has a lot of different bacteria, and you want it to have a lot of different bacteria. So if your microbiome in your bowel is off, guess what? I think it was Hippocrates said, all diseases begin in the gut. So you know where the neurotransmitters in your brain are made? Like serotonin? It's made in your gut. So you can be depressed or anxious, and it's because your microbiome's off. Now I'm blown away. Fascinating. Things that you probably, so what would I do? People have, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do an upper endoscopy. I'm going to do a bunch of tests on you. And guess what? Really all I need to tell you is you got to get the microbiome of your gut. You know, so some people say, what do I do? Do I just say eat vegetables and a little bit of meat? No, I don't say that because really you have to balance the microbiome. So I always say prebiotics, probiotics. And if you're a bottle fed, you need colostrum. Wait, say that again. If you're bottle fed? As a child. Okay. You didn't get colostrum, which is one of the things that fortifies the bowel wall. So you didn't have that. What about, does this, when you, instead of you saying leaky gut, I thought you were going to say lead to an ulcer. No. No, I said it has no. nothing, nothing. That's, so ulcers are, are usually caused by a bacteria. That's new. I mean, well, it's not new, but the guy that found that out had got, he got, they never believed him. 
but he was right. H. pylori is the bacteria that causes ulcers. Okay, so no one thought that. Everyone thought it was stress or, you know, things, spicy foods. That doesn't, those don't cause ulcers. The bacteria H. pylori causes ulcers. Now, can it get worse with like aspirin or ibuprofen? Of course, because that erodes the bell wall. But ulcers are typically caused by H. It's called Helicobacter pylori. That's the name of the bacteria. So a lot of times when we have people that have indigestion or dyspepsia, we'll do a H. pylori test. You blow into this thing and it, and it, it can measure how much H. pylori is your gut. If it's a lot, then it jumps up, then you should be treated for that. Interesting. Very interesting. So, uh, Rodman, any thoughts on what your father said? Um, no, nothing specifically. I think he kind of covered all the bases on that front. Fair enough. So did you know the bacteria, that a bacteria causes ulcers? No, absolutely not. I was under the impression that it was uh, food, spicy foods, nope. um, poor diet. Stress. And um, you know, just yeah, poor diet yeah, and stress. Yeah. It's a bacteria. Interesting. So pre and probiotics. Well, or- okay. So typically the traditional way is you put people on antibiotics and a proton pump inhibitor. Now I typically don't do that alternatively. There's many other things that you can give them. There's some, some essential oils that work for it really well. Okay. So peppermint's really good for it. So I don't always use the traditional three triple antibiotic with proton pump inhibitor that's usually that's the traditional way of treating it and why do i do, don't do that because remember you're knocking out all the bacteria too with those antibiotics okay right the good bacteria and you're and it's two to weeks of those antibiotics you have to be on two weeks so what kind of damage does the uh, antibiotics do to your uh, your gut lining so that's what i'm saying so you're going to knock out a lot of the normal bacteria that's supposed to be there okay Again, promoting what? Again, leaky gut, right? Because you're breaking apart that one cell thick lining. So the one thing, the problem that you have, leaky gut, by taking the prescriptions, you're only making it worse. Right. Right. It doesn't fix anything. Right. And that's how you get inflammation, too. When you leak parts of your gut into you, your body has to respond to it, okay? And it's microscopic, but it still has to respond. So it takes up a lot of energy to respond. In order to have the amount of energy you need to respond, you lay down more fat. Interesting, okay. So leaky gut can cause weight gain because you have to respond to that bacteria and you lay down more fat and it can cause multiple diseases. Remember inflammation, and we can measure inflammation, something called the C-reactive protein. That's a non-specific marker for inflammation, very highly specific for um, heart disease. Okay, so it's really prevalent. If you have a high CRP, you're at high risk for having a heart attack. But there's ways to get it down, right? It's an inflammatory. What's, you said CRP? Yeah, C-reactive protein. Sometimes we call it the HSCRP because it's the highly sensitive C-reactive protein. And everyone should get that. Every patient should get that. I I draw that on every one of my patients. Okay. Yeah, so this this is uh, what's going to lead to a heart attack. Or cancer. Or cancer. Right, because it's a nonspecific measure of inflammation. Okay. So if you want to know why it would cause a heart attack. Let me just explain that in a nutshell, okay? So we used to think that cholesterol would get high and your blood vessel would get narrower and narrower and narrower and boom, you've had a heart attack. That only happens in 10% of people. You know what really happens? Your blood vessel gets 10% narrow, 20% narrower, but something causes inflammation, like maybe your leaky gut. Now your inflammation in your body is high, and that plaque ruptures. And when it ruptures, your white blood cells go there, your red blood cells, and blocks up the artery, you have a heart attack or a stroke. That's what happens in 90% of people. So the very... Inflammation causes the major issue in your body. So you always want to have lower, or eat foods that are lower inflammatory foods. Don't stress out. Sleep well. All those things can increase inflammation. Interesting stuff right there. So... The are there tests outside of the um, the heart attack? So you, you, we have the heart attack, cancer. 
are there screens that you would typically like to perform to yeah, well, uh, I, know whether so, or not so is a high one risk? One of the biggest things that wreaks havoc on the body over years is diabetes. Or... Which diabetes? Well, typically it's type 2, but type 1 can do it too. It's just we have less type 1s than type 2s now because people are obese. Right. So we have more type 2s now, okay? So it doesn't matter. Fluctuations in sugars, when it gets too high... It's like having something sticky in your blood. Think of it that way. So it, so it gunks up all the pro, good proteins. They can't, the proteins in your body can't circulate and do the things they want to do. Your arteries get a little blocked up and, and sticky, so you can cause more inflammation, and it irritates the lining of the wall of the artery, again, causing inflammation. So diabetes itself is a multi-system disease. And it's one of the four or five pillars of death as you age. So you never want to get your sugars to be in the range of a diabetic. But here's one more thing. What's that? You don't have to be a diabetic for, for the sugar to kill you. Here's the thing. It's fluctuations in your sugar over time. So at, so my wife and I and, and Rob, I don't think Robin, we, we all put a monitor on ourselves. A glucose monitor. Okay. Diabetic monitor. And, we, and you can use your phone now to check it. So... I love bread, but I love Caruso's bread in town. So I had a piece of Caruso's bread, 200. My sugar shot up to 200. So here's a piece of bread. Yes. So I can't eat bread. It just tells. So what it, the monitor allowed me to do, it allowed me to see what I can and cannot eat. Because even though you're not a diabetic, any spikes in those sugars are causing a problem in your body. That's fascinating. So would you ever suggest uh, yeah. someone, hey, get a glucose monitor, yeah. slap that puppy on? Yeah. And then you can buy them. You can buy them at Walgreens. You can buy them at CVS. Now, does it puncture the skin and just keep some it's blood? A, it's a very little, it's very, you can't even feel it. You kind of almost slap it on and it sticks, it gets into your skin. It's Okay. It's not, there's no... It's really it's not really that invasive. It's kind of you stick it on, you know? And then you use your phone to check your sugars. No, I don't mind the old needles. I come to you guys for the uh, for the IV. So. But, but but think about that. It's even so think yeah. about that you can actually check your sugars and know where your spikes are. So you know what doesn't spike my sugars that much? Rice, because I think I'm Asian. I mean, I'm Asian, so I think it's rice doesn't spike my sugars. My wife can eat potatoes. That doesn't really spike her sugars. So it's the spikes that uh, mess you up. Yes. The you spikes. don't have to be a diabetic. But you are, your, 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 brother, your body is being affected by those spikes in sugars. Damn. The, so, the spikes. Yeah, so, so that's what I'm saying. So you should you should some point get a monitor yeah. and know what makes your sugars go up. So yeah, I don't eat that bread at Caruso's anymore. How good is the bread at Caruso's? It's crispy on it's warm. It's crispy, it's warm, it's so good. Do you do you ever dip it in uh, yeah. like a marinara yes, sauce? Yes, yes, or yes. Or an oil. Yeah, it's so right. good. Yes, and so it's interesting to see, all right, here is a piece of Caruso's bread, and here's all of these nice condiments in here. And that's just oh, oh wow. This is through the roof. 200. Wow. I went up to 200 with one slice. How long did it take to pop to uh, 200? Is it like instant? I had the bread. I ingested it. I said, I'm going to check my sugar. It's like five, 10 minutes. 200. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so that made my blood more sticky at that time. You see what I'm saying? Yes. So I irritated my blood vessel walls. The proteins that are circulating in my body. By so, how many times during the day does my sugar spike? You have no I'm, idea. Even though I'm not a diabetic, you see what I'm saying? That is that right there is the killer. That is a silent killer because you don't even know. You're looking for all these other big signs, and no one's like ding, ding, ding. It's like, hey, you better pay attention. I would recommend spike. it to everyone to just right, get, a, I'm, I'm get a monitor and just check your sugars periodically. How many good? And you'll see certain things will really spike your sugars. So paying attention to that, um, you know, just looking at like, you know, mental health practices such as mindfulness and meditation, uh, how it positively impacts the physical well-being. So what strategies do you think people can use to incorporate these practices into their daily lives? Okay, so, you know, you can have a successful job, you can have athleticism um, you can have 
education, like a very high degree, and be miserable, okay? So if you're not checking on your mental health, um, there's ways to do that. But let's take a few things that are really important because okay. I was at a lecture about four weeks ago and someone said this, one of the lecturers said this, and it just shocked me. What did they say? He said this. How many of you doctors out there, outside of your family, have three people you could call after midnight? And I went, one, two, maybe three. As you age, your emotional health plays a huge role. And for some reason, if your spouse passes before you, you're left with nothing if you don't have any close friends. And I really don't. I mean, I have my family. But remember, the doctor said outside of your family, who, would you, who could you call after midnight? And I don't think I have three people I could call after midnight, to be honest with you. Let me think about this. This is a fascinating question. Let me see. name comes to mind outside of my family outside oh wait a second i have my three okay good. i have my three all right yeah. I, I have my three but again it's still that you know, was it's, tough. It's, it's tough right that's tough okay but my i asked my wife i said how many friends do you have that you can call after midnight outside of her family she said like 12 she named them all i go how do you have 12 you know what she said to me no why she goes you know why you only have like two or three and i have 12 i invest in my relationships this is like one of those Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely right. I have friends from college that were really close to me in college. Don't keep track of them. I have people in medical school because you know you're together four years, like on top of each other for four years. You know, doing you know cadavers and you know presenting cases. Don't contact anyone. They have their own lives. I have mine. When I, was, when I was working on my master's degree, same thing, had really good people around me that were really close friends of mine. I don't call them. Do you think that's uh, also specific to a gender as yes, well? Yes, I do. All right. So but still, but still he, he was making a point that, you know, part of your mental health is to have that as you age. You see what I'm saying? I bet you he has like 10, but I'm just saying. <laughs> I think I have more than that. Yeah, he has a lot because he invests in his, because he does invest in his friendships. You see what I'm saying? So my point is, is that he's, as you age, you should have that in your, in, in your, in your realm. You know what I'm saying? That yes. should be part of your aging process. If you start to, you really should start to meet and be very close to people. I do get the, 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 the rare, I don't want to be vulnerable because I got burned before. But still, you'll never have that really deep relationship unless you let yourself be a little bit vulnerable, right? You'll never, right. Let, you'll never have that. He said one more thing. What did he say? He said, so when you're, there was a time where um, he had a few patients commit suicide. And he was, you know, saying, he's talking to a bunch of psychiatrists and why they would do that. And, and he mentioned someone, he said, there was a guy you know, a lot of people jump off the Golden Gate Bridge and they die. Well, there's a guy that jumped off and he actually survived. And he said, they interviewed him about two months later. And he, they said, you know, what do you think? He goes, you know what? You know what I realized? When I jumped off the bridge, when I was in the air, I realized that everything that I thought was unfixable was fixable, except that I jumped. Wow. There's a lot of wows that I'm saying that because it's a it's a very profound experience. The two, how many friends can you call? And then everything's fixable. Everything's fixable except that I jumped. You get that? So everything can be really bad, but don't jump. <laughs> That's my point. Because what you realize is everything's fixable except that I jumped. That right there, don't jump. Don't jump. Don't jump. Don't jump. Wow. Interesting. That's, that's a very, very profound to be able to say that. So uh, just as far as like nutrition, what role do you think nutrition plays in preventing chronic diseases? And can you share some evidence-based dietary recommendations for maintaining optimum health? 
Okay. Another thing that I didn't really like hearing. What is that? Plant-based diet is the best. I still eat meat, but I'm just saying plant-based diet is the best way to go. I've been a plant-based diet guy since I was 14. Oh, my gosh. I'm 47. Wow. Wow. Now we just, uh, the last seven years, uh, we've become vegan, and that wasn't by choice. Um, My son has a gluten allergy and a dairy allergy, so instead of us making meals around him, we just said, hey, if one of us uh, has it, we all have it. Guess what? We're all vegans, and we're all Look how good you look, though. Look how good you look. To be honest with you, really, plant-based diet is the best. Now, no. Can you have some meat here and there? Yeah, but again, it should be grass-fed meat, as you can you can imagine. Right. Um, wild-caught fish, and, this, and not the real big fish, because a really big fish like um, um, tuna and swordfish, they have a lot of mercury. Uh. Okay, so you want to go with a smaller fish. Um, Mahi is a smaller fish. So some of those that don't have all the mercury are going to be the smaller fish. Right. Okay. More like also the deep sea or the right, deep... Right, like a wild-caught salmon. You know, yes. not farm-raised salmon because right. the amount of omega-3 fatty acids is much smaller in farm-raised. Right. But again, if you're going to eat anything, because I'll tell you, if you go to a restaurant, you're probably not going to get wild-caught salmon. You're probably going to have farm-raised salmon, but it's probably better than eating a steak. I, a lot of people are not going to like that. No. <laughs> I mean, no. I didn't. Li- I don't like it that it's pretty, you know, cut in stone now that the plant-based diet is the best diet. They had that show called uh, Game Changers. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys heard of that. Yeah, uh, I have. All right. So back in the day, if you look at some of those photos right there uh, behind you, uh, we used to run the the top MMA school and also jiu-jitsu school. And so we had a bunch of ultra athletes, very athletic. And so I was 6'4", just under 250. I've never done steroids. You know, it's just working out, eating. You know, I just would eat a lot. But I never got tired. I never, ever got tired. I would do, you know, 12 six-minute rounds. Sometimes we do six 12-minute rounds, and I never got tired. Everyone else, super fit, you know, super muscular. They wore wore out. (sighs) They're tired. Wow. And I would say, and everyone would say, oh, yeah, how's those veggies? You need to eat meat. I said, why? I said, why do I need to eat meat? I said, I last longer than you. I can go longer than you. I said, you're strong, but your your strength isn't going to fail you. And I would tell people and try to promote vegetarianism and just a plant-based diet, and I got laughed at. You need protein. I said, guys, I've been doing this now for 30 years. I said, I'm still alive. Well, you were right. You were right. So I didn't want to hear that, to be honest with you. I didn't want that data to come out. I really? thought it was going to be like, you can have some meat. You probably should eat grass-fed meat. You probably should eat... No, it's not that. It's plant-based diet. Plant-based diet. There it is, guys. <laughs> plant-based diet. I, okay, whoever's out there, I'm not for that. I love meat, but I'll tell you right now. <laughs> when I got the data, I've definitely shifted a bit. Yes. So here's another thing, speaking about the plant-based diet, is our ability to... Um, has you know bowel movements mm-hmm. bowel movements right. so again that goes along with your microbiome and your gut so when it's stable you want to have one or two bowel movements per day so i get on my kids i'm like guys we need to have like three four a day yeah i'm just like hey look we you want to eliminate it because you don't want stool sitting in your gut because it has toxins in it and you yes. absorb those toxins yes that's why i have this big old Thing. I drink minimum two of these things, 64 ounce Great. bottles and, you know, plant-based stuff. And so just, I need to keep this stuff flushed right. out. Right. I, I want to get rid right. of all of these right. impurities. And so when I think about meat, if you just think about like the process of anyone eating any food, it doesn't matter what it, whether it's meat or not. By the way, I absolutely love bacon. I can't eat it. But my gosh, I would eat a whole pound, actually just three quarters of a pound of bacon every day, six Snicker bars, and a bag of Doritos. That was my meal every day. Now, 
on a different note, uh, going back to the plant-based stuff, when I consume the plants, it's easy to digest. Also, I can't prove it, but I do believe in my, you know, the way that I feel, there's a better absorption rate that I'm receiving based off of that. The last thing I would say is when we look at like the food, look at how people eat. If they're, if you go to a restaurant, people are basically, and let's say it's meat, burger, fries, they take one big bite, chomp, hump, hump, swallow, flush it down with water. I'm like, oh gosh, don't do that, don't do that. You should be chewing that food until it's mush and then wait. You know, I don't, hey sir, can I bring you a glass of water? I don't need water. I got spit. I got my digestive enzymes in my saliva. I'm good. I'm going to make sure that I chew the daylight, small bites, chew it until it's mush, and then swallow, and then just take my time. And I notice that whenever I do that, and then let's say afterwards, I'll pound on a whole, you know, 32 ounces of water or something along those lines, warm water. I, I can't do the cold water. Um, I feel nourished. I don't feel tired. You know, I hate feeling lethargic. And so the heavy foods, the processed foods, you know, the, uh, you know, the foods with the um, artificial flavorings, colorings, preservatives, that stuff, you know, it, it has an impact on your body. And I think it also has a neurological impact as well. Oh, yeah. So what do you know about the, how food impacts mental health? Let me just tell you something. So... When you look at your food yes. and you go to the like the supermarket or you go to the grocery store, do you notice that the organic fruits are more beat up? Yes. You know that's so much better for you than the real shiny ones? Because what happens is, if we were talking anti-aging, there is a term called hormesis. Hormesis means what doesn't kill you actually helps you. So with fruits and vegetables, when they're stressed, they make all these chemicals, polyphenols, resveratrol, all these things that are so helpful to help them survive. But now you're getting those in you when you eat those. <laughs> all those nutrients. So you should eat ripe? Uh, well, you should eat fruits that have been stressed. How do you know that they're stressed? If they're a little beat up. Like, you know, with the bruises and everything yeah, else? Actually, just like beat up. Actually, actually one of the, one of Dr. Sinclair says he'll even pick out a, uh, a piece that a worm's been in because it's been stressed. Really? Yeah. So stressful. So that happens with people, too. But, I was, you know, if you were talking anti-aging, hormesis also happens with people. So if you stress your body a little bit, like you said, if you have one meal a day, you're hungry. So the biggest mistake we made in diet is that we should be satisfied all the time. We should always be full. That's probably the biggest thing that happened in instructing people that just, just get, eat till you're full. No. You should be hungry. You should be very hungry. Remember I told you, so when you're very hungry, your body hunkers down and starts to repair things. Okay, because it thinks something's wrong. Just like a cold shower. Your body's like, whoa, whoa, whoa why is it so cold? It says, oh, we better do something, so it starts repairing stuff. Hunkers down and starts repairing stuff. Hot sauna, same thing, okay? All right? So those types of things, that's called hormesis. What doesn't kill you actually helps you. Same thing with your fruits and vegetables, okay? That's why the beat-up ones that have been kind of stressed are better for you. Fair enough. That's so for, for every meal, Renard, you have to roll with it first. Okay, I'm totally going <laughs> to drop the people's elbows. <laughs> hey, banana, you're done. Here's the split. <laughs> but remember, while it's on the tree or whatever, it has to be have been stressed. See what I'm saying? So, wait a second. That's key. On the tree. Or whatever, the vine or whatever. On the vine. So, the so. grapes don't look that great because they it's too cold. See what I'm saying? Or it's too hot. They shriveled up a little too soon. Well, they just made a ton of polyphenols and anti-aging stuff in their core. Wow. See what I'm saying? Yes. All right. That's all I know. So uh, let's skip forward to the, let's hop into anti-aging since this is like your bread and butter. So it's become a hot topic. Can you just clarify what the term medical, you know, in a medical context and discuss the science behind the aging process? Like how do we age? Well, aging is now considered, well, by most anti-aging people, um, it's a disease. 
So it's like something we shouldn't really get, but we get it. Why? Because certain genes, longevity genes, are turned off as we age. Okay, and it has to do with something called the epigenome. Okay, yes. So, so the epi, so you have your genes, and they work, and they tur- they make proteins and all that, but the epigenome regulates them. Okay. All right, so it regulates the genes. So, what so if you need speed it up, slow it down, or mm-hmm. as far as or like what do you, whatever you, you know, if you need. So, what happens sometimes is that as you age, that epigenome is disturbed. Okay, so if the epigenome is disturbed, it doesn't turn on the longevity genes because it's you, we did something to it. Okay, mm-hmm. and there's many things that can do that. Okay, so. The, the technique now is, is there any way to turn on those longevity genes? Okay. So we talked about a few things. Intermittent fasting increases sirtuin genes, and those genes start to turn the clock back. But you need NAD to have those sirtuin genes work. Okay, so NADN is called nicotinamide adenosine dinucleotide. That's Say a very that five times. So it's a very small nic, nicotinamide adenosine dinucleotide. It is a small molecule that helps us produce energy in our cells. Okay, and it does a lot of other things, but really the main core is that it produces energy. So here's the thing: NAD is goes down if you have COVID, goes down as you age, goes down if you break your arm. So over time it goes down, but you still have to have it. So if you're without NAD for 30 seconds, you're dead. So you have to have it. But it goes down over time. It takes away all of your energy. But that NAD is also important in the longevity genes to work. Sirtuin genes need NAD to work. Okay? And, And remember, so if you don't replenish it, your sirtuin genes don't work that well and you can't actually produce longevity. But things that stimulate it are going to be like, like I told you, hormesis stimulates it, stimulates those longevity genes. Same thing with, um, I told you, intermittent fasting stimulates it. Um, There's some supplements that stimulate it. Quercetin will stimulate it. And some of the things like aging, we start to develop things that are um, toxic to our bodies. And those are called senescent cells. Those are cells that are dead. And as we age, we can't get rid of them very well. When well, you're young, you, you get... Them? Well, there's many ways to remove... The, so the body has macrophages, to, but we don't remove them very well when we're older. Okay? So when you're younger, you get rid of them. So they also, they're also called zombie cells. Yes, I've heard of zombie cells. So there are certain things that are called senolytics. In other words, you have senescent cells, those are the dead cells, and you have things that are called senolytics that get rid of them. One of them is quercetin. Quercetin is a senolytic. Okay, so I take quercetin every day. Okay, so quercetin will get rid of those zombie cells. You also have what we call autophagy. So autophagy is folded proteins that are old and, and damaged that we can't get rid of as we age. Right. And again, things like intermittent fasting and NAD helps you get rid of all those. Okay? So a lot of those things, like the zombie cells are spilling all the... They'll cause problems with their sirtuins and, and NAD. They, go, they start to make them go down. And that's why you need things to get rid of those cells and get rid of the, the old proteins too. And so... Quercetin is one of those things. There's also something called facetin. Facetin. That's even stronger than quercetin that you can buy over the counter as well. Interesting. So now we're since we're talking about supplements, I think it's worth talking about like the delivery system in order to penetrate to a cellular level. Like because if we take something, if I drink something, I don't know, who knows, you know, like think about the absorption rate of your drink versus a capsule under your tongue, an IV. Right, so, so the absorption, that's a really important question. So if you take a thousand milligrams of vitamin C as a solid pill and you, you'll probably only absorb 20%. So you really only get about 200 milligrams of that. Okay, so taking pills, I think capsules are a little bit better than solid pills and then liquid is a little bit better than capsules and then liposomes are better than liquid. Okay, so liposomes mean means that there's a membrane around the vitamin or nutrient and it absorbs in the upper GI tract. Okay? 
So typically you hold, it on, you hold it on your tongue for about 20 seconds and absorb. So it doesn't absorb in your lower GI tract. It absorbs in your upper GI tract. So how does, it, how does the, the supplement dissipate the, uh, the nutrients throughout so, so, the body? So the liposomes are, are around it. The liposomes, once it gets into your body, your normal enzymes break it down and now the, the okay. nutrients release. So it just needs to make a pit stop at the enzymes and say, hey, Hook me up, guys. Give me a crunch. Right, exactly. exactly. So, so the thing is, is, the problem is it's just getting into your body, right? So liposomes are a great way to get in the body because they're surrounded by a membrane and it absorbs a lot better than a solid pill or a liquid or a capsule. And then, and, then, and, then, and then you have intravenous, which absorbs 90 to 100%. It's going directly into your system. How do you get the liposome? Uh, we have Quicksilver. There's, okay. a, there's, a, bunch Quicksilver of, there's a bunch of companies, but the company we use is Quicksilver. Quicksilver, I buy a lot of that stuff from you guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that stuff those are great. liposomes, yeah. So Got you're it. getting those. If it's a spray, it's a liposome. Got it. Yeah, that's interesting stuff. So the liposome, in terms of like people wanting to purchase those things, um, are liposome-type products more expensive? Yeah, they are because, they're the you know, obviously someone had to come up with that solution and has a patent on that and so it's probably a little bit more it's not that much more expensive but it's more expensive than a regular vitamin it's not i mean it's um and actually when you when you take the cost to um absorption ratio, yes i was just going there yeah. right so like yes. our um our vitamin c it's a thousand milligrams per teaspoon i think that you take of it it's thirty dollars it's probably about the same amount that you would get for like three months of a thousand milligrams of vitamin c at walmart but this one's only about a month, 20 days, 20 days to a month. So you're looking at, you know, one to three on that ratio of cost. However, with the ones from Walmart, you're getting 200 milligrams. With the liposomes, you're getting 850 to 900 milligrams. Understood. Understood. So there is a... Um, benefit. Think, yeah, there is a benefit and also with the cost. Right. Um, yeah, people they don't put that into consideration because they don't understand that the mechanism of action of the liposome. They just think it's more expensive. Right. The same thing when it comes to like uh, vegetarian or not vegetarian, but or, you know, eating organic based foods are right. like, well, it's too expensive. And I said, well, if you think that's expensive, wait until you have a health condition. Right. Let me know how that one works <laughs> you out. You can pay me you. now. You can pay me later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know how that one works out for you. So, um, now, there's a growing interest in uh, regenerative uh, medicine. Can you explain how stem cell therapies and other emerging technologies are being used in the field of anti-aging? So there's there's a couple things. So we use a lot of what we call platelet-rich plasma. It's called PRP. Right. We get it from your own blood, your own plasma. Okay. And plasma has plasma platelet cells, and the platelet cells spill out regenerative substances are called growth factors okay and these growth factors are spilled out by the platelets in your blood so we get platelet-rich plasma from you we, we spin it down to specialized centrifuge it isolates it now we have it in a, in a syringe and we'll use an ultrasound to determine what kind of damage you have to the knee like a torn meniscus or strained ACL or whatever and we'll use the ultrasound to guide the platelet-rich plasma into that area and it regenerates the tissue Okay, those growth factors in the platelets that were released regenerate the tissue. The growth platelets, are they more than what you would get, let's say, from an umbilical cord stem cell? No. Umbilical cord stem cells are the probably the best thing you can do, but they're illegal in the United States. I know Damn. Okay, so but people sell them still. You, I've gone to conferences and they'll say we can get stem cells from Wharton Jelly or this other part of the umbilical cord. But I will tell you that we have a, a a guy that has really close contacts with the FDA, and so he'll call. He'll say, "No, don't touch that. You'll get in trouble. If they get if they go down, you're going to go down with them because it's illegal still." We hear these guys at conferences all the time trying to sell us that stuff. Okay. But, you know, we always contact our guy and say, is it legal yet? Because this guy seems like it's real. He goes, no, it is not. Don't get involved with them. They will bring you down. So, Interesting. So you can get umbilical stem cells in Panama. Panama is the biggest country to get it in because they do a lot of it. Um, but stem cells, if I get them from you, I can still get stem cells from you, but I'd have to do like a bone marrow. So... If you've ever had a cancer patient and have a bone marrow biopsy, it's kind of the similar thing. Um, it's a trocar that goes into the biggest bone, thick, thick part of your bone, in the belt, one of the pelvic bones in the back, and we, and we screw it in like that until it crunches, it's in, we put a syringe on it, um, 
pull it out. It looks like you know thick blood in there and a little bit of paleness to it. We'll put it in our machine. It isolates the stem cells, and then again, use your ultrasound and guide the stem cells into the area that that's affected. So with okay. the, the idea with the stem cells, at least the umbilical cord ones, um, they just have so many of them versus as we start to age. Ah, get it. If I, I had a 90-year-old guy come in, when does knee done? How old? 90. He said, I have atrial fib and I'm 90. I went to orthopedist. They say, can't, they can't do surgery on my knee. So I'm looking at you. Can you do stem cells? I said, I can do stem cells. It's $7,000. And your stem cells are 90 years old. It's better if you do PRP. So we did PRP a month later, no cane. Walked in, says 90% better. So my point is, is that I could have done stem cells on it, but it would have been unfair because these are really old stem cells. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. So it's not a good idea to use stem cells if, unless you're having you know, a teenager or a, it's not a good idea to do it on older folks. And that's what, who has more of the problems? People that get in their 50s, 60s, and 70s start having joint problems. Right. You see what I'm saying? So it's better, I think it's better to do PRP until embryonic stem cells become available. And if they do, then I'll definitely use embryonic stem cells. And we have just as much success with the, the PRP. PRP. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times we'll even say we can do the stem cell treatment, but let's try PRP first because it's more cost effective to you and it's less invasive for us. If you do PRP first, see if that works. And then if it doesn't, we can consider the stem cells. Nobody has ever come back and asked to need the stem cells. That's wonderful. Um, I, I think it was last year or the year before I was in here rolling with some of the guys and I tore my meniscus in my left knee. And I knew immediately when I did it here in class. Right. The next day I went into the office and ultrasounded it. I found the tear. That evening when all of our patients were gone, I drew my blood and everything, spun it up. I had him do the injections. Um, I think the next week we went on our family beach trip, so I just laid really low off my knee on, on that week. Um, we got back. I spent one more week just taking it easy. And the next week I went back into the office and ultrasounded it, and it was gone. Just like that. Just like now, that. Regenerative medicine. Now, quick question. How long would a torn meniscus tear typically take to heal on its own if you didn't do anything at all and you're doing your little uh i would say closer to six months to a year wow and you would be sore and you wouldn't be you know it cause you know your mobility was wouldn't be great yeah you know one of the that's a really fascinating thing that you just said about the prp the other thing I, that i can just speak definitely about is that laser light uh, that Sona, I think it's... The, the, the Suma Slater. Suma, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah Suma. That's, that's a rate. The NAD injections yeah. and, uh, oh my gosh. Yeah. A lot of different techniques. Yes, yeah. and that was crazy because for those of you who are listening on this, I tore my calf muscle, could not walk to save my life. I actually had to walk turn my foot backwards that way I didn't flex on the calf muscle so I would walk backwards that happened on a Monday I had to leave here uh, for a flight to go and compete in Florida and I competed in two divisions the my weight class and then the absolute so it's like there's no weight limit I was the smallest guy in the division everyone else outweighed me by 50 plus pounds I still won the damn thing. That was that was like the most, because everyone here was telling me when it happened, because they saw how much pain I was in. I couldn't even walk. Everyone's like, well, if I were you, I wouldn't do it. I was like, you know what? You're not mean. That's why you're, and that's why you're not going to do it. <laughs> and I said, I happen to know something, and I was putting everything on, uh, um, on your business, like you know, your practice. I it was, was like, lucky I walked in that night. Actually, yes. I decided to come to class because yes. we uh, we got that taken care of. So it was wonderful. Uh, it was wonderful to see how effective alternative medicine has definitely become, uh, and I've used it uh, personally. So uh, looking at that, one other thing too, and um, we'll get to wrapping it up. Actually, if I can just indulge for two things. Sure. All right. Number one, hormone therapy is often discussed in relation to anti-aging. What are the benefits or possibly the risks associated with hormone replacement therapy? Who might be, and who also could be a suitable candidate? Because there's a lot of women right now 
hitting their mid forties, going through menopause, and you know they're just like, and they're still wanting to look, you know, pretty and all that stuff right there. What do you know about this stuff? So hormonal therapy definitely makes you feel better and look better. Unfortunately, any hormonal therapy is not anti-aging. Wait, what? It's not. Wait, no kidding. Not. It, it makes you feel better. Right. It doesn't. No, there's no proof it makes you live longer. So it makes you feel better. But here's the thing. When you feel better, you can start doing all the anti-aging things. You see what I'm saying? Got it. Okay. So even supplements. There's a lot of anti-aging doctors that don't like supplements. But I'm saying if your vitamin D is low and a bunch of things are low, you can't do the anti-aging things because you don't feel good. You give them their supplements back. Now they feel better. Now they can do the Just like hormones, same thing. Hormones, are when, you're, when they're deficient, you don't feel good. Right. You give them hormones back, they feel great. Unfortunately, it's never been proven to be anti-aging. Got it. So it's a feel-good thing that you can do, and uh, most people could do that. Is there another alternative instead of hormone therapy? Mm, plant-based diet. Plant-based diet. You can reverse that a bit with a plant-based diet, but again, that's a, that's a, that's, that's a big undertaking if you're not a plant-based person. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. But it can be if you go on a plant-based diet. You can increase your testosterone. You can increase female hormones if you go on a plant-based diet. All right, so last question. Um, what are the ethical considerations that someone should actually keep in mind when if they're exploring anti-aging treatments or interventions, you know, especially in the uh, context of emerging technologies? The you're asking the ethical considerations. Yeah, is there, is there anything that people uh, need to be aware of from an ethical standpoint, as you know, if they're considering it, like an anti-aging treatment? Uh, I mean, ethically. So here's the thing. I, I, I mean, I, I, there's a lot of ways you can discuss anti-aging. Is it good? Should we be doing it? Right. Um, I think you know, solutions to the world happen when people are thinking and sometimes wisdom over years can give you more ideas for the world so i i don't think anti-aging is a negative thing it can it be of course you know we can use anything as a negative thing but i think anti-aging to me is is a great route for wisdom to teach the people before us because a lot of times that knowledge is lost in the grave it is it's lost I mean, old folks sometimes have a lot of things to offer, but they can't, or they have dementia now, and they, they had so much information before, but they were now able to pass it along. So I think in that respect, it's very helpful. So with that being said, I'd like to thank Rodman. Thank you very much for your contributions, Dr. McCashup. This was incredibly informative, and I hope that people uh, really, uh, we didn't really get a chance to tap on to the, uh, the COVID conversation. We'll, we'll do right it there. next time. Yeah, yeah, we'll yeah definitely. Uh, but as far as the, the two major topics, health and wellness and anti-aging, that right there should be a slam dunk for anyone uh, who's listening to this right here. And there's many things I mentioned that they can do at home. Yes, absolutely. Freebies. Yes. So guys, thank you again for uh, joining us on this show. You're rolling wheel with Renard. You guys talk to you later. Got to go. See you. Love you. Bye. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for rolling with us on another inspiring episode of Rolling Real with Bernard. We hope that you've gained valuable insight and motivation today. Remember, the power to transform your life is in your hands. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends, family, or anyone seeking positive change. Together, we can make a difference in the lives of others. So, continue rolling. We'll talk to you soon.